Hello and welcome to The Why Podcast, a Think at London Business School podcast featuring faculty talking about their research insights and how you can apply these in your own working life. I'm Cathy Brewis and my guest today is Linda Grattan, Professor of Management Practice at London Business School. Her MBA elective on the future of work is one of the most popular. She's always right on the pulse of the latest trends and in fact often ahead of the game, as with her book The Shift, where she was one of the first to realise how tech advances as well as changing societal norms were already radically altering work as we knew it. Her book about longevity, The Hundred Year Life, written with Andrew Scott, Professor of Economics at the school, has been hugely influential. And her latest book is Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organisation and Make Hybrid Work for Everyone, which offers a practical framework for leaders and it's already proving to be a huge hit with business leaders and others alike. I wanted to ask her what her latest thoughts are on hybrid working, something that everyone's trying to figure out, but no one really has yet. So Linda, thank you very much for coming along today. Really looking forward to um, hearing all of your latest thoughts on hybrid working and other things. Thank you, Cathy. We'll just go a little bit of context to begin with um, around sort of how the how the idea of flexible working has evolved. I mean, even in the time I've been working, it's just changed so drastically, hasn't it? From, you know, jumping through extraordinary hoops to get a, a very slightly condensed week to now this thing where it's completely normal for people to come into the office once or twice. Um, could you just give us a little bit of uh, context around that? So I'd known for many years that flexibility was going to be crucial to people. In fact, in in my earlier book, The Shift, which looks at the way that work was shifting, I made that as a strong point. But the truth is that in most organisations, flexibility wasn't really seen as something that was either a priority or indeed something that was possible. It just looked too complicated. And then the pandemic came along and that those... uh, extraordinary uh, weeks and then months and then years really had a profound impact on the way that we thought about work, what we wanted from work. It gave us new skills. You know, we learned how to be digitally savvy, whatever age we were. Um, We learned that it was nice to be at home and connect back to our kids and to stay healthy. And actually what organizations found is that in many cases, people liked that flexible or what's now called hybrid work. They liked the opportunity, the autonomy, uh, and in some cases they were more productive. And so that's really where we are now. Um, There's still a battle on in terms of hybrid. There are still CEOs who are saying, we want everybody back into the office. And I've never really thought that was a bad thing. I think it's perfectly reasonable for a CEO to say what they want. But of course, there are consequences and some unintended consequences for those sort of strategies. But we're seeing a great deal of variety. And that's what, you know, being at London Business School and studying this is why that's so exciting right now, because so many different companies are taking a different way of thinking about the future of work. And how do you see at this point the the main challenges of hybrid work for for organisations? Well, hybrid work certainly has its challenges associated with it. Um, And those are sometimes about uh, problems of unfairness. For example, I've just written up a case of one of the large uh, manufacturers in the US and half of their people work in offices so they can work from home and half of them work in factories. So is it fair that factory workers have to come into the factory every day and don't have that sort of autonomy? So how can that company think more creatively 
for example, about scheduling and time rather than simply about place. So that's one sort of challenge we face. Second challenge is what does it mean when you don't see your colleagues very much? And we don't really know the answer to that. There's a lot of research that's happening. It's coming out, you know, on almost on a week to week basis. But what we're learning is that when you don't, you're you're not proximate to your colleagues, you don't see them very much, your networks tend to uh, reduce and you're less likely to just to bump into people. And, And the groups that that's particularly troublesome for is young people who are just work, starting work. You know, sitting, working virtually in their home isn't something many of them want to do. They want flexibility, but they don't want to be virtual workers. So I think what we're seeing now is a much deeper conversation. And I and I think it is a conversation that's going on within a senior executives uh, teams about what are the problems? How do we solve them? How do we keep going? Many teams are now committed to a more flexible way of working. And they want to make it work. So what we're seeing now is questions about how do we make it work? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, in the pandemic, it was sort of thrust upon people that this is something that we we had to do. But now as, as we're coming out of it, it's actually a choice as to how you run your company and how you organise the work. And I think, as you as you said in your, in your Times article recently, there's you know, there are different approaches to this, even, even within a leadership team, people have very different ideas on it. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I think what happened at the very beginning, and, and uh, you know, it's understandable, is people said, well, how do I like to work? So therefore, how do I want everybody else to work? So executives like me of my age who were brought up in offices said, well, I, I like to work in offices, so I think everybody else should be doing that. But actually, quite a lot of them have now realized that, in fact, there's a lot of advantages of giving people more autonomy about when they work and where they work. But there's still big differences between companies. For example, you know, if you're running a factory, people can't work from home. If you're running a hospital, they can't work from home. I mean, there are some, particularly some of the law firms and some of the uh, big investment uh, companies that are saying, we really want everybody back in the office full time because we think that's how we share tacit knowledge. It's really important for people to learn, for them to talk about information as it comes up, think about knowledge flows. I've never really had a problem with that because I think the job of a CEO is to decide how best to be productive. And if that's their view of that, then that for me is a perfectly reasonable uh, decision. But of course, there are consequences. So, for example, some CEOs who have said, I want everybody back in the office, have found that some of their most talented people have left uh, or, they've, or they've found that it's been hard to recruit people. So I think for those leaders who are listening today are thinking about what you want. You need also to think about the consequences, both the ones that you intend, but I think just as importantly, the unintended consequences. How much of it is about trust, you know, as a leader, just the, the, that sort of basic thing of, you know, if your people are there in front of you at their desk, at least it looks like they're working. And some people find that very reassuring, don't they? Yes, I think one of the challenges of hybrid work is that if you're not in the office, you know, are you lazing about? And actually, there's been some pretty derogatory comments about people working from home, even though we know that home workers tend to work longer hours. Um, they're not sitting around watching daytime television. Um, so that, you know, this issue of trust is really important. Part of the ways that 
uh, you know, some leaders measured productivity as, you know, how many cars are there in the car park in the morning and what time are people leaving? And that was a very crude measure of productivity. It suggested that people who were present were more productive. So what we're now realizing is we need much more sophisticated ways of both allocating work, but also measuring work, measuring outcomes. And that's really what we notice in our research that companies are really grappling at the moment with at the moment, which is how do you measure outcomes? So given the sort of the challenge of uh, work being something that actually, if you're working from home, it can take up more of your time. Um, what can people do in terms of keeping that sort of, you know, work-life balance, even the, even the concept of that has just changed completely, hasn't it? But in terms of, I think you talk about respecting the off switch. So how can we get the best out of people whilst also respecting that, you know, their rhythms might be different from ours? I think that's one of the real challenges that we faced at the beginning of COVID is that the reason productivity went up is that people worked longer hours. And of course, that was partly because we had nothing else to do, if you remember. And of course, now we've got more to do. We can now go out and go to the theater and go to the cinemas and go out for supper. Then, you know, clearly those hours are now going down. Another issue really uh, is just that work is all all encompassing and emails come through, you know, 24 hours a day. And that can be exhausting. And we know that uh, sleep patterns are being broken. People aren't sleeping eight hours a day. We we can see that. And so it's really important that we find ways of managing boundaries. And that's really at the heart of all of this is the management of boundaries, the management of boundaries between you and your work, you and your kids, you and all the other things that you do. And that's very difficult to teach people if they're in a company where the senior people don't respect boundaries. So one of the things that we've learned when we've looked at organizations is that those companies that where the leader respects boundaries, they're much more likely to do it themselves. But that's going to be important because, you know, if people start having mental health issues, uh, having illness issues, then that's a long-term problem, not just for their company, but for the UK economy. Yeah, and it's interesting how um, these these sorts of conversations are often around um, you know what you can do for your organisation, but actually, if you're going to lose some of your best talents, if you're not doing this stuff right, I mean, I mean, it works, you know, on various levels, doesn't it? You you talk about productivity being um, a, a need to sort of dig down a bit more into what's meant by productivity, and I think in your in your book, uh, you you talk about energy, focus, coordination, and cooperation. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, thank you. Well, in re- I wrote Redesigning Work very quickly. It's pretty much I started it pretty much as soon as the pandemic started because I could see that uh, even though work hadn't changed much since the Industrial Revolution, it was going to change a lot during the pandemic. And uh, and I think we're still uh, feeling the uh, some of the outcomes of that. But one of the things that I realized pretty early on is that whilst it's interesting to talk to people about what they want, and I think that's important to do so because what we all need differs between, you know, who we are and what stage of life we're at. Um, nevertheless, there are aspects of your job that make, you know, that, that drive productivity. And in some jobs, a job like mine, for example, where I'm primarily a writer and a researcher, it's focus that drives my productivity. You know, today, for example, I've spent five hours working on something. If I'm interrupted all the time, my productivity absolutely tanks. And in lots of jobs, there are aspects of tasks which require focus where you're not 
you don't have endless meetings. And one thing to remember, Kathy, is that the number of meetings that we're having has doubled since the pandemic. So people are shoving a lot of meetings into their diaries. And that's one thing that suffers is focus. The second is really about a coordination. And by that, I mean, you know, how do you coordinate with your teams? And uh, that can be synchronous, you know, like you and I are speaking on a platform, a social platform right now. It could be asynchronous. I'm sending you an email, you respond. And I think what companies are realizing is they need to be a lot more thoughtful about asynchronous and synchronous work because there's quite a lot of stuff that honestly you can do on a Slack channel or on an email channel. You don't really need to meet synchronously. You and I don't need to be talking face to face virtually. But then there's some aspects of cooperation which really, you know, People feel it's good to be near somebody. It's good to be seeing people face to face. And so I think one of the the challenges we're all facing at the moment, I feel it in my own work, is asking ourselves, you know, how much of our work is about focus? How much is about coordination? How much is it about cooperation? And therefore, where should I be to maximize that? You know, one, one thing that happened right after the pandemic, when people started coming back into the office is they were finding they were coming into an office, often with a long commute, and all they were doing was was sitting on uh, on their computers doing Zoom meetings or Microsoft meetings, and they were very resentful of that, rightly so. So, you know, what we're beginning to, to realise is if you want people back in the office, there's got to be a good reason for them to be there, which means they're more productive, more creative, more engaged, less likely to quit than they if, than, if they were sitting at home. And these are some of the you know, deep conversations that are taking place really as we speak. I mean, this is what I'm writing about this very moment. So that brings us actually to something else I know you're really interested in at the moment, which is the idea of friendship at work. Because part of being in an office is those conversations that aren't necessarily about the work itself and that sort of sense of community. Yeah. Well, I've been really fascinated in friendships for ages, actually, in part because a colleague of mine at Harvard, when he looked at... um, the lives of people. He, he he runs a study which has looked at people's people's lives right from you know the age of twenty right up until eighty. So teams of researchers have done this, and what they found is that if you look at happiness for for people, one of the primary catalysts of happiness is you know I have a friend at work. I'm I, you know I have friends. I'm not lonely. Lonely is loneliness is is a terrible human condition. So so work is really important, and I began to write about that right from the pandemic onwards, really, and saying, look, let's not forget about connectivity. Let's not forget about networks, meaningful conversations, friendships. But what really got me interested is I wrote a a column in the Financial Times. And one thing about I love about writing a column, and as you know, I have a column now in the Times uh, as well, is that you get a lot of comments. And a lot of people commented on that and said, yeah, I can't really have a friend at work. You know, I can't trust people. People are completely untrustworthy. So I went back to my friend at Harvard and said, well, hang on. Um, What do you think about these comments? And so he and I wrote a very nice piece for MIT Sloan, which came out last month, about in the response to that, which basically said, yeah, you should have friends at work. It does mean, A, that you've got to be thoughtful about making a friend because you don't want to make a friend who's you can't trust or who you know tells everybody your 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 private conversations and so on but so you have to first of all decide whether the person is trustworthy and then you have to go through a process of making friends which really is about shared activities you know a disclosure talking to people about yourself in a, in a disclosive way 
And that friendship, you know, I have a, I have friends at work here at London Business School. It's just a major source of joy. So that what what I what what Robert and I said was, don't stop making friends at work just because you feel you can't trust people. Just learn to trust. Find ways of knowing whether. I mean, there's some people at work who are untrustworthy. They're not going to be your friend. Don't worry. You don't have to be friends with everyone, but try and find people that you trust and and see if you can build a friendship with them. Yeah, and um, I guess this ties into that the conversation around authenticity as well, doesn't it? In terms of, you know, whether whether the sort of work you, the professional you, is the same as the other you, and you know how much of that you bring into your work. Yeah, well, that question of identity, you know, is something that my colleagues at London Business School study. You know, Hamini Ibarra's work on working identity, and and what we know is that people are different. Uh, you know, some people like to have a work identity which is entirely separate from their home identity. Other people like to merge the two. It seems to be almost a character trait. So I don't think one should necessarily expect others to be the same as you, you know, some people don't want to share everything about their lives at work and one has to be sensitive to that. But I do think given how many hours we spend at work and how long our working lives are, you know, Andrew, Andrew Scott and I are suggesting we should all be working into our seventies. Well, you know, that's an awful lot of time either to have friends or not to have friends. And my view is you should be tipping into wanting friends rather than not having friends at work. Yeah, definitely. Um, I wanted to ask you also, there's um, a section in the book where you talk about what makes a good manager and how that's changed or changing. Um, and you make the distinction between sort of leading work and leading people. Is, is that something that's uh, to leading the work? Has it just been an afterthought or how how is it changing? Well, you know, what became really fascinating during the pandemic is the companies that we followed that were, had very good data analytics on what was happening within companies began to realize that um, good leaders, good team leaders, had highly productive groups uh, and highly engaged groups. So we began to say, well, what does it mean to be a good leader? And the data also gave us some insight into that, which is primarily that good leaders are empathic. They they talk about you know your your future. They 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 they, they coach and mentor you. And, and what I realized is this was very problematic because most leaders don't, most managers don't have any time to do that. And that's why Dana Gerson, um, a colleague of mine who just stepped down from the board of IBM, and I wrote a Harvard Business Review article on this very topic, you know, is, is it too much for managers? Are we asking managers to, too much, to do too much? And we came to the conclusion that we were, that we were asking managers both to manage work, scheduling, all the stuff, really tough stuff in hybrid, by the way, but also manage people. And we talked about, you know, what organizations should do. In some companies, they actually separate those roles. In other companies, they really give people a lot of coaching and how to be a better, more empathic person, how to think about others. In others, they use a lot of AI technology to take stuff off the manager's plate, as it were. So we basically said, there's a number of strategies you can use uh, to help managers focus on people, but you need to do at least one of those strategies. And then as an individual working in an organisation, what can you do to make a hybrid work well for you if needs and and you know perhaps different um scenarios outside of work in terms of other responsibilities um and 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 you know you might have a boss that prefers being remote or you might have someone that really wants you there all the time how how can you make that work well for you what what are your tips well 
what we noticed is there was a sort of a top-down and a bottom-up approach, and they both work together, really. Top-down leaders have different narratives. And, you know, if you want to be flexible and you work in a company where the leader wants you there five days a week, you're probably in the wrong company. And it's very difficult under those circumstances for individuals to do things differently. I mean, that, you know, the leader is employing you under that on that basis. And that's really what you need to do. But let's assume that the leader has said, it's okay, you know, I'm, I'm okay with hybrid, and maybe even said how marvelous it is, who knows? Um, what can you do? Well, what we've noticed is the most important thing is team agreements, that these are not, in, you know, an individual cannot on their own decide how they're going to work, because most of us work in teams. And we've got to work with teams in those agreements. And so the piece I'm just writing at the moment really is about those team agreements, that how important they are, that you teach leaders, team leaders, how to make those agreements, and that everybody realizes that team agreements have got to be made. And in some cases, you know, you're doing stuff that people don't really like. Um, But if you don't do that, then what happens, what we've noticed is that the, the person who's, who, who, who wants the most sort of gets the most and the, maybe the introverts or the people who don't have kids end up, you know, being in a position where they, they don't get some of the advantages. So there has to be a pretty straightforward, open conversation that says, you know, this is how we're going to work to, as a team. This is how we're going to deliver to our customers. That's really important in many companies. One of the principles of hybrid work is we still want you to deliver great customer service. So how does that count with the customers? How does it count with other departments? You know, one of the companies I'm working with at the moment, each of the departments created a different way of working. And that made it incredibly difficult for somebody who's working across departments to know what what they're supposed to do. So, you know, these team agreements, which actually might also involve team leaders talking to each other, turn out to be really important. So some of that's um, about cultural, what you've just said about sort of different parts of an organisation having their own sort of subcultures. I mean, it's it's going to force more more communication across those, isn't it? Um, yeah, really interesting. Saying, of course, there's no one way of doing this and there's no sort of correct answer. And there's a lot of experimentation going on, isn't there, in terms of what can work and what can't. Um, but I wondered if you could just give an example of success. I never give case studies these days, Kathy, at this point in, in, you know, I've, I've, I've fallen foul of that so many times of writing up a case and saying, oh, this company's absolutely amazing. And then the something terrible happens. So I, I, I don't want to sort of pull out any individual companies, but what I would say is that the companies that are doing well are companies where they've gone through the sort of four stages that I talked about in my book, which is to say, They've, they've thought about what sort of work do we do? What do our customers need? Um, they've really understood, the, you know, the choices that they've got. They've begun to model an experiment. Um, they've worked out whether that's fair. And they're now thinking about, well, how do we get everybody involved? So, for example, I've just written something about New South Wales transport, transport for New South Wales down in Australia. And they've done an absolutely brilliant job of running endless, you know, um, sessions with thousands of people on how to run a great hybrid meeting, how to make a team agreement, you know, all of this stuff. So, you know, it's a lot of, there's a lot of things that have to be done. Uh, You know, if you look at Microsoft, they've done a brilliant job at understanding their data and saying, you know, they were the first ones to call out the fact that 
uh, the meetings had doubled because they could see that from their Microsoft data. So they went back to the organizer, into their organization and said, why are we having so many meetings? Why are you doing that? So I think what's really, um, what I really like, you know, the companies that I, I find are doing a good job at the moment are the ones that are engaging with the problem. You know, there isn't, there isn't a, as you say, a one size fits all. There's no obvious conclusion to any of this. It's still going on. I'm still writing a Harvard Business Review article about, you know, hybrid work two years after I wrote that cover article. Um, so, you know, it's about experimentation. It's about being prepared to question. I mean, one company that we've just looked at, um, the CEO uh, sent out a note to to all his other CEO friends and said, how are you doing this? And then made a, a video of it, made this amazing 30-minute video of all his CEOs from other companies saying, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And all, of course, entirely different. And he showed this to his senior team and said, what can we learn from this? And I think it's that sort of in, engaging in the spirit of learning that's really crucial at the moment. There isn't, there isn't any one way of doing it. Um, there's lots of problems along the way, really a lot of problems, and that the the leaders who are doing it well are being are prepared to learn, to collect data, to realise it's really about teams and not individuals. I think that's a that's been a real insight for me over the last couple of years. It's is that the, the unit of production is the team, it's not the individual. So these are sort of just a continuous learning process rather than a hey, isn't this marvelous? Here it is, it's in a box, we've written, we've we've you know, we've done the ribbon, it looks great. Now we can move on to somebody something else. I don't know anyone who's done that. Well, it's going to be really interesting seeing uh, where things are at, you know, two or three years from now, isn't it? Thank you very much, Linda. That was really great um, hearing some of your thoughts around all of this. I look very much looking forward to seeing where your research will take you next. Thank you, Cathy. The Why podcast is brought to you by the editorial team at Think at London Business School. Follow us here for more episodes on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more faculty research insights, go to london.edu forward slash think. You can also sign up there for our free regular email newsletter to get tips and tools and news of our alumni direct to inbox. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.